Welcome to the podcast of the Urban Mystic. This is season two where we meet with fellow deconstructors, fellow journeymen and journeywomen to hear the story of their first experience of God calling to ministry, deconstruction and present journey. I like that. And Brandon, as, as you journeyed through the church, what led to the moment at which you, you exited and find yourself in the current space? And perhaps there are a couple of seasons that I'm linking together there. Just just to be clear, I, I, I have so many layers of ambivalence about institutional religion. The, the, the two things I have no ambivalence about, first is that institutional religion is fine. I think that's absolutely wrong. And so I'm no ambivalence when I say, it's got so many serious problems. But the second thing is that we can just throw it away and not worry about it. I'm, I'm equally sure that's not true. And, and one of the reasons I'm sure that's not true is that human beings do need a story that they, that they place themselves in. And if religion doesn't provide that story, then something else will. And, and I don't want religion to provide that story alone. I think the stories we need going forward are stories that emerge from conversations between each religion and the other religions and science and history and psychology and all the rest. In other words, I think we're at a point where our ancient stories are being reappraised, but if people think they can just throw it away and be done with any worry about story-making, all I can tell you as a guy, in fact, I'll just tell you, yesterday I was uh, part of a political rally and this group uh, called the Proud Boys, they're a group of white nationalists. Our, our group of presenters was surrounded, I don't know, 75 or so Proud Boys with their trucks and their flags and, uh, you know, threats um, and uh, profanity and yelling and honking horns and everything else to silence us. And what you realize is, yeah, religion is ugly, but but you want something even uglier, think about politics that makes itself absolute. And then think about economics that makes itself absolute. And so you start to realize managing the, all these challenges that we have, the, the, pro, the human predicament, the human problems aren't solved when we throw away forms of religion that weren't helpful for us. <laughs> we need new ways to deal with these human problems. But here's how that happened for me. I, I had been a pastor for 23 years. I was writing books and I was watching pastors get eaten alive. And I was watching the religious right gain more and more ground. And I, I started to realize that I can't do two things well. I, I can try to be a good pastor in this one congregation. And my feeling was if I could set a good example, this could help others. I realized it wasn't going to work that way. I'm all for people who set a good example in forming new kinds of faith communities. I realized that, you know, my work as a writer, for me to do that well, and as a speaker and as an activist, I, I should turn over the church to somebody else. So my, my departure from the church was not a loss of faith in it, but it was, a, it was the sense that this battle happens on many different levels. And I, I'm not a big fan of military analogies, but if you want to say it this way, being a pastor in a local church is like being a sniper, I'm sorry, being a, a soldier crawling under barbed wire on your elbows and knees in the middle of mud and bullets firing. 
And and I, I again, I'm not a big fan of this, uh, but sometimes you need to call in the Air Force. And I feel like being a writer is trying to, you know, create some larger uh, change in the environment to so that people. I do like the the language of, uh, in some ways, is to go continue the military language. The, the notion of a force multiplier that you've got these small specialist teams that yes. that can make a massive or can make a disproportional contribution. And in that sense, it's it's a good analogy for for people like yourself as a writer and a thinker and contributor. Well, that's that's kind of that's kind of what I was feeling, and and of course that has taken new directions that I couldn't have anticipated. I I had been for the last several years of my life as a pastor, I'd been increasingly interested in interfaith relations. I was accelerated because my church was just outside of Washington, D.C., September 11th, 2001. Our, our world was quite shattered. We had not only the you know Pentagon, just uh, where we could see the smoke from the end of my street from the Pentagon, but also we had an anthrax scare that uh, a lot of other people weren't aware of. And so it just felt like the world is really falling apart. And we developed a relationship with a mosque up the road. And, and one of the things that I has been like, I couldn't have anticipated is the degree to which I have been welcomed into Muslim and Jewish spaces and relationship with Sikh and Hindu and Buddhist leaders. And, and I find out that they're having exactly the same struggles in their faith. Now, they're not the dominant religion in my country, and the dominant religion has uh, special temptations and problems and challenges, but, but you realize these are human problems in every religious tradition. I, I like the way there was a Catholic philosopher named Ewart Cousins, and uh, the, the brilliant uh, Franciscan theologian um, sister uh, Ilia Delio, um, says it, um, that, that all of our religions, our world religions, were formed in the first axial age. And, and now we're, we're in another axial age. And so everything is being shaken up. You know, uh, and every, every religion is facing similar sets of challenges. Well, well, it's it's one of the um, quotes that I, I remember from from Beard Cousins, where he says the 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 challenge of our time is that we we are living in a time when the world's spiritual heritage is all coming together, and the challenge is what do we do with it? And so, in, in some ways, there's there's almost like a an ethno political religious kind of nationalism that goes together, which is quite fundamentalist in the words of Lombard, like a muscular expression of faith. That is a it's a global threat, and it's not a particular. You know, it often gets the face of Islam just because there's a tension, you know, between our culture and and the Middle East there. But we see it within Christianity. We see it. We see fundamentalisms of all kind around, and they can be quite helpful. I mean, that particular kind of militant fundamentalism. So it's still in the in the in the place of of finding an expression. People that have been modern, they've they've treated this opportunity that we've got as though it's a loss of faith, and there's a there's almost like a regression to hold on to it. You know, like a yes. reflexive thing. You know, in the same way that there's a reflexive nationalism taking place in the world is reflex of almost fundamentalisms mm. in, in terms of faith. But in the space in between, I'm definitely seeing a lot more people and having a lot more conversations with people that are, in that sense, leaving the institutions because of that fundamentalism, but they're not leaving their faith. Yes. They are asking a whole new set of questions almost from a pluralistic framework. So it's not, yes. it's not from the position of my faith is the truth and art being threatened. It's from the position of going, 
I'm from a faith that believes this is the truth, but I wasn't necessarily experiencing that. And so I want to develop almost a, like a global perspective and a global sense of our shared humanity. We need to let our nationalisms go in the same way that we need to leave our faiths go. And that's not to be done with them or to destroy them, but it's to, it's to find a bigger and better box, recognizing that it will be a box that has to change at the point, at some point in the future. But, but for now, the boxes that we've had were from much smaller population groups on their corner of the earth. As yes, opposed to yes. having this global perspective, those visions that a lot of religions have had, almost like a universal perspective of them taking over the world, the, the challenge is that, that the world that they've moved into is the world that everyone else is moving into as well. And there's a particular set of questions that are coming out of that that I think people need the freedom to ask and we need the freedom to explore them. But often deconstructors of whichever faith they're in, you know, and, and for us, the vanilla and the background that we're from is Christianity. We don't always experience it as a safe thing. Yes. And as someone that is that that in your case, you've you've become almost synonymous with that kind of deconstruction. Are you sensing a, a change in the way people are responding to these kind of questions? Is there that that change from, you know, people were opposed to them and now people are more open to them, or, or are you seeing very much an overlap that you've got people that are are almost as open to cancelling you now with a stronger group that's also as open to saying, let's connect. Oh. Yes. Yeah. Well, I, you know, if I only speak in terms of the United States, I can tell you that what's happening here is that fundamentalist Protestantism and fundamentalist Catholicism are having the same kind of purge reflex. They want to purge anyone who doesn't support Donald Trump and who, uh, you know, They've developed it's so it's now a an ethno religious nationalist political movement and and it's racist you know and it's it's there are all kinds of dimensions to it but of course my my Hindu friends in India will say yeah and there's a Hindu ethno nationalist movement of Hindus now who want to make India a great and the way to do it is by you know, oppressing Muslims and Christians and Sikhs and, and, and so on. So, and, and in, in Myanmar, you know, there's a group of Buddhist mm. nationalists who are doing the same. So, so you realize this is a human problem. And, yeah. and at the root, it, it, you might say it's a problem of authoritarianism. And mm. this is the amazing thing about religion that I hope people can see. Mm. Under the one word religion, there is religion that's used to support authoritarianism. And there's religion that's used to subvert authoritarianism. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> I, I just was asked to preach a sermon, uh, you know, via Zoom um, uh, yesterday, and I preached on the book of Esther. And if you, if you read the book of Esther, it's hilarious. It is, it's just an amazing uh, story of uh, a feminist movement against a hyper-masculinized, masculinized uh, authoritarianism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And there's racial elements and all the rest. And uh, oh my gosh. And, and sexually non-binary people play a key role in it. I mean, the, the, it's just staggering to read that book in light of today's world. So this is part of the interesting challenge. Will religion play a role in helping us evolve beyond patriarchy, beyond authoritarianism, into the next stage? At that point, whether you call it religion or spirituality, but questions about what life means and why we're here, 
if we don't, I, it becomes an existential, a question of our existential survival, right? Do, do we have the capacity to embrace a new story and a new set of values by which we won't destroy each other and destroy the planet? There it is right there. And, and uh, I'll just tell you, anybody in the world of religion who gets disillusioned and says religion is part of the problem, well, then I think you're going to have to say, well, what's going to be part of the solution? And thank God, there are scientists who are part of the solution. And there are politicians who are part of the solution. There are artists, there are educators, and there are business people. Everybody has a job, but religion has a big job too, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think especially with the with the recognition that that religiosity is an aspect of of our personhood. It's yes. not it's not the outplay of our institutionalism. That that it's not a it's not a it's not a it's not like a an institution that is created that then gives people religious ideas. People innately have a spirituality or a mysticism that often then shapes and and becomes these institutions. And it's just a question of of whether people, you know, people embracing that are often the catalyst for change in many environments. As much as we can look at at religion and say, oh, you know, war, religion, bad, synonymous, that's that's a bit of a false dichotomy. You know, certainly, certainly anyone that's thinking post World War II has got to recognize that the human capacity for destruction didn't need God at all. We're fully capable of doing that on our own. Yeah. Yeah. And and we can't make this kind of militant mm. uh, fundamentalism, the escapism for that, especially not if people are thinking from atheistic perspective. So so it, it becomes it becomes interesting that it's in the sense that it's it's quite a it's quite a complex thing for people to to unpack. But the difficulty the difficulty in some ways is is almost a tension between how should I put it? Someone once explained the the, the tension between people that support climate change and people who stand against it. Along the lines of going, anyone who holds nationalistic identities is against climate change and the science thereof, and, and people that are very much, uh, you know, for the world as a whole and think yes. beyond their nationalism, they're actually open to going. No, I can, I can actually accept the reports of science and I can understand it. Yes. And I think, I think it's the same kind of thing with 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 religion. Any nation. Uh, any ethnic, national, political conjunction of those two. That is the concerns about a singular group only as set yes. against others tends to be quite unhealthy, and and yet within those same environments you find people with these wonderful uh, cosmic global visions yes. about, about unity with the cosmos, unity with God, humanity, unity with our fellow humanity, nature, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That 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 there's a lot mm. of richness in there, and most healthy religions they tell these stories. You know, like you referred to Esther. If I was looking to polish religion towards some kind of nationalistic objective, there's a lot of stories I would not have included in the Bible, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Kind of shoot yourself in the foot. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so true. Uh, so true. You know, uh, uh, as you say that, I, 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 I remember I wrote a book uh, in 2007, 2008 called um, Everything Must Change. And I can't remember, it came out one of those two years. And, and in the book, I identified three global problems, uh, actually four. Uh, and the easy way for me to remember them is to say the planet, uh, poverty, peace, and then politics and religion. And I'm putting politics and religion together because as ways that we organize ourselves. And, 
But Planet Poverty Peace, the thing about these is that they are no single nation and no single religion can solve any of these problems. We mm. are we this, have to do it together. Every single nation has a part to play in addressing them, right? So it's a both and, and people who want an either or, globalism versus nation. Well, no, we need uh, uh, all of the above. We and in not just nations, we need cities and you know all the other divisions, neighborhoods uh, uh, involved in this too. But when you think about the planet, obviously global climate change sees no boundaries. But nor does the acidification of oceans, nor does the depletion of fisheries, nor does uh, agricultural methods that destroy soil, nor does the loss of insect life, reptile life, mammal life, bird life, which are happening around the world um, because of the cumulative effects of all nations. So the planet, all of us, uh, we have to come together to deal with this. Poverty, um, all around the world, a super rich, super elite own a bigger and bigger percentage of the wealth almost every year. So that, uh, you know, depending on who you ask now, between eight and 23 individuals own as much wealth as half of the population of humanity. I mean, the and, and to own that much wealth is staggering enough, but think about how much power that gives to those eight to 23 people. And then, uh, and then peace, you know, that the fact that we can multiply weapons, nuclear weapons, biological weapons, and so on. You just realize this, we are at a point where the old ways of doing things make no sense anymore. And uh, it, call, it brings about change. And so suddenly now, the Muslim who gets this and the Christian who gets this and the Buddhist who gets this and the atheist and the humanist who get this, we all sit down at the table and, you know, the atheist says to the Buddhist, do you guys have any stories that could help us uh, and any understandings that could help us deal with human greed? <laughs> and, and, the, and the Christian says to the Jew, hey, where have we misinterpreted our scriptures so that, or, or your scriptures so that we turn them into reasons to weaponize when we should see them as reasons to, uh, you know, build, keep peace together. And I can just tell you as someone who's privileged to be part of those kinds of conversations, wherever that happens, you feel, oh, at last, you know, at last. <laughs> And, and Brian, is that as I hear you speak, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, I don't want to go as simplistic as a blueprint, but is that part of the pattern that you see that is emerging and needs to emerge yeah. um, more and more in terms yeah. of the what comes after, you know, that everything's got to change. In, in some ways, we've been posing the question to some of our guests of what, what comes after the church. And I, and I hear you talking on a much, much bigger scale than just essentially local church. And, and it's not that I've you know, missed your comment earlier in terms of religion and its importance. Are these the kinds of patterns, the, the mutual telling of stories, the listening to each other? I hear you talking about community connection, curiosity, you know, inquisitive, inquisitive nature, but not towards power dynamics, towards a shared and common life. Is that kind of the pattern that you would like to see? And what would you add to that in terms of what, what, what is available to us in the hereafter? And not the capital H here after. So uh, here's what I think we need. I think we need two things simultaneously. And some people might specialize in one, other people specialize in the, uh, specialize in the other. But I think each, each of those needs to appreciate that we need both. And, and the first is for the kind of revolution, refounding, new beginnings that we need within our religious traditions. I, I, I uh, think that John Cobb and Alfred North Whitehead uh, and others have this right when they say 
first that religions are always in the making. They're, they're always changing, even though they claim to be unchanging, they are changing. Even when they argue that they're unchanging, that changes them. So uh, it makes them resistant, you know, um, which changes them. So, <laughs> yes. um, so we need these advocates for change within each religion. And I could say within each nation, and I could say within each industry, and I could say within each business and so on. In, in other words, this, but within our religious communities, we need these creative people who say, given the treasure that we have. And that treasure includes atrocities, terrible failures, because those terrible failures have to humble us. Um, and, and we can learn important lessons from what went wrong, right? So each of, the, each of those traditions, we need innovators who, who create new spaces within those traditions. And then we need people simultaneously who are building relationships across traditions so that those intra-faith revolutions can collaborate globally. And that, that's what I think we need. It, it, it's a both-end thing. So what that means is that, you know, in Johannesburg or Cape Town or, or, uh, or whatever, you know, uh, city or area where people live, that you say, okay, I'm, you know, Dutch Reformed, I'm Anglican, uh, I'm Muslim, I'm Jewish, I'm humanist, I'm atheist, whatever. What, what can I bring to the table? How can I bring people together in the ways that are needed? How can I find treasures within my tradition? And of course, for me, this is why, uh, you know, in spite of all of my frustrations with the Christian religion, I mean, the treasures that are there are staggering, you know. It's criminal how we have managed to hide them from ourselves and everyone else. But, um, but how can we resurrect those, tr those treasures to help us deal with this time? I need to do that. I want my Hindu friends to do that. I want my Buddhist friends to do that. And then, we, and then I want all of us to be able to share our treasures. Now, where that leads 100 years or 500 years from now, I don't know. But one thing I know is you can't even bring people, the treasures of different traditions together until people have figured out what they actually are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's where deconstruction is incredibly, is incredibly <clears throat> important. <throat> and it's, it, it really is a privilege of our time. I couldn't agree more. That's right. You know, one of one of the things that I'm I'm loving coming out of uh, out of this period is is just that sense of of almost uh, you know as you say understanding the story of how the world came to be and understanding that we we're joining a story that is ongoing but we join it late and we're going to leave it early and we're going to help make that story. It's 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 just it is a time of rich transformation. And in some ways, when I when I when I look back, I'm I'm adopting language these days that what we know Christianity to be is Christendom in translation. Yes. And there's a there's a story that's bigger than that that will allow us to to really understand that that precisely what Christianity is is exactly what it's not. Yes. Yes. And somehow in there is is one of those one of those those complex parables that that it, on the surface it actually sounds like nonsense, but when you dig into it. We get to realize that that what Christianity can be after Christianity is actually precisely what it was always meant to be, rather than having to fit it into these boxes that we've had and to fight each other over them. Or our market so share true. of truth, as we see it, or our market share of of geography and politics and the wealth of the world, and and that that allows us to 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 share it in, and mm. only by sharing it can we genuinely be a part of it. 
Yes. Yes. And, and um, I, I would just say white Christians have a special challenge in this regard because, it, you know, I think it's safe to say in the last 500 years, white Christians have caused the most damage. Now, you might say they've done an awful lot of good, too, and I think that's true. But the good we've done doesn't uh, negate the evil and harm we've done. And the sad thing is that many Christians remain just criminally ignorant of the harm that's been done. But I'll just share a quick anecdote in this regard. I was in France a few years ago after I wrote that book on uh, why did Jesus Moses the Buddha and Muhammad cross the road. And I was in, in, I can't remember which city, I think it was Manchester. And I was mm. in each city where I spoke, I was paired up with either a rabbi or an imam or a Muslim activist or something like this. And so I was with this uh, brilliant Muslim activist, Algerian feminist socialist Muslim activist. How's that for a set of? Um, <laughs> That's uh, wonderful. <laughs> uh, yeah. And I think I should add the word anti globalist was also in there. And so we did our evening and, you know, we were interviewed and talked and, and it was great. We're, and the evening's over, everyone's left, and she and I are standing in the coat room of this cathedral. And she said to me, I've never heard a Christian admit. Uh, you have problems. I've never, ever heard a Christian admit you have problems. And then she said, we have problems too. It'll become a lot easier for us to admit ours when you admit yours. And I, there's a lot of truth to that. That's beautiful. I mean, that speaks to me very much of what you're talking about just now of the uh, the joined dialogue around a table where we're able to speak at that level to and with each other and listen to those. When you have a bully, when you have a bully religion, you know, that's intimidating everyone else and claiming supremacy over everybody else and falsely thinks that everybody else is claiming supremacy over them, you know, which is just not true. Um, but when you have that kind of ignorant, unself-reflective bully in the world, nobody is acting their best <laughs> until the bully is able to disarm. When you get people's backs up and you come at them mentally, they have to defend themselves and you can't use their defense as justification for you to oppress them. And, and it just seems like that's the cycle we often get caught into. Exactly. Which, interestingly, is very much at the heart, I think, when Jesus said, don't try to take the splinter out of your brother's eye until you deal with the, the board in your own. And, and so there this teaching turns out being profoundly political and of global significance at this moment. So, and, and it means that this work of deconstruction that each of us thinks we're undertaking individually, like I'm this failure, I'm having these doubts and everybody's judging me. Well, no, I am a symptom of a problem in this community I'm part of. This community desperately needs some deconstruction. And I happen to be one of the lucky brains and hearts and lives in which it is happening. <laughs> We've mused on this in conversation with others. And it, it definitely comes out that deconstructors within their own communities often feel alone and isolated and ostracized. And there's just a sense of, oh my goodness, I can, I can, I can let my guard down. I'm in good company because I'm, I'm in now in the company of other deconstructors. Yeah, yeah. It's the disarming of that, uh, of that bully phenomenon in some ways. There's a, there's a space where there's a bit more of a neutral value or a bit more of a positive value and a bit more resonance. But I also I really enjoy that reframing because I think it can and challenge that in some ways into action, actually, into activism towards going, yes. not, not the activism where we're going to go and burn things down and burn the bully's house. Yes. <laughs> yes. 
but yeah, I think it's it's that idea of being able to 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 march with courage forward uh, with this privilege almost that I hear you reframing that as Brian, um, that we get to do some of this thinking and this work. And that hopefully, and I think that that's one of the costs that I count most often within myself and in conversation with other deconstructors. There's a short-term cost in a way to be paid, but if you can reframe that as that's, that's also a privilege to bear, um, that's very helpful. Thank you. Well, it's, and as we all know, it doesn't feel like it when you can't sleep at night and when you, you, know, you wonder what's going to happen uh, to your soul, your marriage, your family, your, you know, your livelihood, uh, uh, your, you know, all this. But it's, it's inevitable. One of the sentences I remember when I wrote it, I thought, am I going to regret writing this sentence or not in, in this book, Faith After Doubt, is I, I, I said, only doubt can save the world. Uh, meaning we have to doubt capitalism. We have to, you know, and if you love capitalism, we have to doubt the form of capitalism that's, that's destroying the world. We have to doubt uh, violence. We have to, and and that means we have to look at the ways that our faith has been, you know, uh, accessory to the crimes that are being done. And and so uh, we're we're really at an existential, uh, at, at a moment uh, that we're. I mean, again, to sound super biblical, there's a broad road that leads to destruction. And I'm not talking about hell. I'm talking about ecological overshoot and political cannibalization and all the rest. There's a broad road, and if we want to avoid that road, it's going to take some courageous uphill uh, struggle, uh, the kind that, that, that we're talking about. It requires the vulnerability of, of recognizing that we, we're protesting participants in things like capitalism. We're, we're part of the problem, but we're also trying to bring the solution. And the vulnerability, you know, it, you know, vulnerability is something that is shared. And so when I speak to people that are, are capitalists and I try to have that as a conversation, it's very easy for them to go, oh, well, you're just being a Marxist. <laughs> you know, yes, now you're yes. the communist, now you're the enemy. And I'm going, no, I think, I think <laughs> we need a world that is as post-nationalist as it is post-religious. That's as post-religious as it is post-capitalist, as post-capitalist as it is post-Marxist, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not in the sense of, 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 of just burning everything down and not having an option. It's, it's basically going, let's learn from everything. Let's learn from the success and the failure. You know, even, even things like, like this, this current pandemic, people are now starting to go, oh, look, you know, at least 30% of our population can work responsibly from home. And look, they're taking less sick leave and they're working harder and they're more productive. Who would have thought, you know, yeah, whereas, yeah. whereas, whereas I think back 20, 20, 20 odd years mm -hmm. ago to companies that I knew back in those days where people were doing that. And those companies discovered that actually, if people can work their own hours and just be responsible adults, you know what, they, they are responsible adults, <laughs> as opposed to let's try to treat them like children and force them to be in the office. And why are you one mm -hmm. minute late? And, you know, you can't go pick your child up. You have to stay at a five, you, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's, and when I think of those, those constraints, they're, actually, they're not human. They're artificially imposed constraints. Yes. Whereas, yes. whereas now, during this pandemic, we're actually discovering a more human working environment, which is just, I, you know, there's an incredible irony there, but it's a rich, rewarding irony. And I just, I just wish in some ways it could seep through the rest of society and quickly. Yes, well said, mm. well said. Um, mm. uh, as you mm. say that, uh, do we have time for me to just tell a quick story? Yeah, totally. Please do. <laughs> okay, well, 
the, the funny background of this is uh, if anyone who knew my financial situation, I'm not the kind of person who belongs at the Davos con uh, conference, annual Davos. You heard it first here, folks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, what's his name? Hans Klaus, I think the founder, he, he uh, some years ago, he said, you know what, if the nations of the world blow each other up, if the religions of the world blow, blow each other up, that's really bad for business. So they, uh, for I don't know if they do this every year, but one year they said, we'd like to bring some religious leaders there, have them give presentations to enrich our conversations. So I happened to be invited. So I found myself at Davos and I gave a series of talks. I don't even remember what I talked about at different venues. And I'm on a bus going from one place to another in the beautiful snowy city. And this fellow from South Africa sits down, he and his wife sit down next to me. And he says, uh, I'm, I can't even remember which bank it was, uh, but I'm, you know, a banker. And he said, um, when I heard you talk today, he said, we built, uh, we, he said, uh, we just funded a gold mine in a city in South Africa. And he said, we thought we were enlightened and we tried to do everything right. And he said, we've made, you know, whatever he said, millions of dollars or whatever. Um, he said, and now it's done. And we've left that city, that town, more impoverished than ever with pollution and prostitution. And he said, we tried our best. And I, he said, when you talk today, I realized whatever we're doing, it's not working. And, and I thought, what a moment at Davos. <laughs> <You know? laughs> wow. Like you know, Brian, with, with some of the stuff that you, you mentioned earlier, I, I hear you moving more into a political space, that your deconstruction is taking you in that line, you're, you're, you're rising, you're thinking along those lines. How do you feel about that? Because, because I imagine some people would describe you as incredibly brave, and, and others would just think that it's an inevitable outworking of, of, of your story. Well, theologically, you know, the Christianity I was brought up with told me that this life doesn't matter. All that matters is the afterlife. Jesus is coming back soon. And even if he doesn't, you're going to die. And so all that matters is getting people on the lifeboat for heaven. And that's really what I was brought up with. And even though people make distinctions between fundamentalists and evangelicals, I hate to say it, but there's, they're indistinguishable, I think, in that way. When your end game is heaven and hell, it trivializes everything going on on earth. And on the social level, uh, and maybe it's possible to retrofit that kind of religion to uh, to avoid being irresponsible. But I haven't seen anybody do it very successfully for very long. So, um, so my theology changed so that I came to see when Jesus said, for example, the kingdom of God is at hand. I think what he was saying is a way of life that's not self-destructive, that is characterized by justice and joy and peace is within your reach if you would just rethink everything and accept it. So suddenly those categories of religion and politics and economics and education and art, everything be, just becomes life. And you realize that, are we working at all? Do we have a, a unifying vision that we're working for uh, the, the kind of well-being that would make any creator happy rather than miserable <laughs> over what we've done. Any, any creator worth cr creating that's such an incredible planet. Um, and, and so they all, it all fits together. In fact, it's funny, right before, uh, you know, our, our conversation, I just saw uh, uh, an article that was uh, written by Kamala Harris, you know, who's running for 
vice president here in the U.S. And let me just see if I can find this. She here she she says she defines faith. Faith is what allows us to see what can be unburdened by what has been. Mm. I thought, mm. what a fantastic definition wow. of faith. I love that. Yeah, that's lovely. Faith. Uh, allows us to see what can be unburdened by what has been. And that to me is this thing that we just so desperately need uh, at this moment. And, and that's why even, you know, for all of the deconstruction that we have of beliefs and theologies and religions and institutions, that's the kind of faith that I think we need because, um, uh, you know, and I think we need it abstractly, but look, I got, I have five grandchildren what kind of world are they going to inherit? What kind of world were, will their grandchildren inherit? And suddenly you realize, yeah, we need to be able to see what can be unburdened by what has been. And, and there's so many levels to that, but that is what, uh, what keeps me going. And it has, and, it, and, and if, you know, right now I'm super involved in politics because it just feels like my country is the most dangerous rogue nation on earth right now. And, um, but I also think I'll say, even as I say that, I'm suspicious about what I just said, because I have this other theory that what's really going on in our world is that our world is already controlled by this group of eight to 23 oligarchs who, whose money really controls all the governments. And while we pay attention to governments, behind the scenes, the oligarchs are, are amassing more and more wealth. And uh, there's, uh, there's a Ukrainian saying, I, some, a Ukrainian person quoted recently, she said, um, in Ukraine, the rich say, the poor are the shit in which we grow our money. And, you know, I think that's the attitude of these, of these hyper rich people. And so ironically, this brings me back to my faith, because then you realize all that stuff that Jesus said about money, that you will either love God or hate money, or hate hate money, uh, hate, hate God and love money. Um, yeah. yeah. However, you know that that yeah. that that binary that suddenly realized. Yeah, you know, mm. one way to define the love of God is the protest against making money your absolute, and uh, and suddenly everywhere I turn, I can't escape from that. So yeah, that's that's how all these things fit together to me. Well, it, it often comes as a bit of a surprise to to, to to people that I chat to when I argue that the notion of the kingdom of God as put forward by Jesus is firstly deeply relational. And the way you treat the the person that you're raised most to disrespect and despise is, uh, in, in a sense, a, a measure of the degree to which you, you understand what that kingdom is. And then yes. it's not a kingdom about some future reality it's actually about this life this world and, and i think in some ways you know I, mm. I i i was exposed to the kind of christianity that had no sight of the fact that that the the that the notion of resurrection is important that that we're not going to die and go and be floaty ghosts yes. on clouds in an abstract heaven some kind of ether you know it's it's not dante's heaven it, it it's that prophetic vision of one of going on this earth, in my flesh, I, I, I serve the Lord and I'll stand here again. Then in that yes. sense, death is, not the, death is not the answer and it's not an escape to heaven. In that sense, the resurrection is a return to the earth. <laughs> and Christ's life yes. to the full is, is the sense of, I'm, I'm here to give you this life to the full in the here and now. 
And the challenge is to embrace that. The challenge is to actually in, enjoy it, but not in a way that takes away the enjoyment of life for others, but in the way in which my life is my life is enriched right. by enabling other people's lives to be enriched. You know, that it's about that 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 relational investment in this life, in this world. I've been reading Martin Hagland's Secular Faith. I, I, I don't know if you're familiar with him and, no. and his writing, but he's got this he's got this wonderful processing of the way in in which you know we as people have been subject to the laws of religion and we've been subject to the laws of capital. <laughs> yes, and, and we don't have to be. We can change our historic situation, and that means that we can change our relationship to these institutions and change that relationship of, of power, you know, and, and in many ways, I think, I think we're still at the dawn of, of recognizing that even the notion of human rights is not universal. It's less than 150 years old. Yes. And, and in that sense, it, it, um, it is about the rising value of, of the individual. And yet we still live within countries where we're not free individuals. You know, I, I know you live within a country that's got that as a motto, right, freedom and the freedom of the individuals, but we're not. We're all subjects of these sovereign states. Yes. And in that sense, we're actually not free individuals. And the relationship of governments to individuals needs to change. And we, we, we started seeing stuff with the French Revolution and, you know, with dictators being overthrown in, in recent years. But, but I think we're fast coming to the point where we're going to see economics and politics overthrown in a new way. And, and in many ways, I, I, I just want to see that hurried along because there's something so much better that can come out of that. Beautifully said, beautifully said. I, I just, uh, my daughter sent me a link. Uh, it might be something you could share in your show notes to a, a song that's on YouTube. Um, but there's a line in the song that says something like this. Uh, yeah, it's Samara, S-A-M-A-R-A. Jade, J-A-D-E, and the song is called The Place Between, just a beautiful song. And uh, she says something like, the world is falling apart. Maybe it needs to fall apart. <laughs> and, and you never could say that glibly. Uh, and then she says, so that we could come together in a new way. And I think that's just, just what the possibility of the moment is. Absolutely. I love that the embracing of that, in some ways, that descent into chaos. You know, again, Richard Raw's cycle that I reference quite often, the order, chaos, reorder, just put very simply. You have to be ready for things to fall apart somewhat to be able to find what's on the other side and not react reflexively, as we've been talking about some of the institutions and, and people groups and people that would rather run back into order. There is, I think, a courage at looking forward and going, okay, well, what? this is a gift. I forget which politician, I feel it might have been Churchill who said, never waste a crisis. Um, and in some ways, that's a, a personal thing as well. And it's a, it's, it's a social thing for us. It's a religious thing to go. This is a wonderful gift of a crisis that we can look forward to. And I would also pray and hope for uh, the hurrying along of that reality. But I think that for me is, is on the other side of that chaos is a, is a renewed ability for us to grasp this kingdom of God that Jesus speaks about um, and these new and different ways of doing things that can only be imagined once we have had to walk through some of the chaos because enough of what we've held too dear has been able to be, you know, it's been stripped away or burnt away or fallen away. There's you know, so many pictures that we can bring to these, these statements. And I look forward to that as well, even though it's hard because I don't think you can say those kinds of things flippantly. And I can't imagine that she's singing those lyrics flippantly either. 
it's uh, it's not a, a wish to see the world burn just because it can burn. There are some things that need to change, and some of that requires deep and hard work within the individual. And I think it was Jung who said, you know, if we'll make it through this current age, it's because enough individuals are willing to do that inner work and arrive on the other side. And I think it's individuals, and they're also our collections of individuals, our collectives, our societies, our groups. If we can do that work, and we can look through the chaos, look into the darkness, and we can imagine what's on the other side. Uh, Sometimes even if we can't imagine, I suppose, there has to be a hope that uh, what's on the other side is, is in some ways better than what is here. And I guess that's partly what's been bastardized in the passport theology of the afterlife is, well, we'll just get there and it'll be better. But I see that very much located in the here and now as well. It's now, now is the time to, to hold on to that and to reach out for that and to be hopeful for that. Beautifully said. It, it adds, I, I mean, all of these old words that have been so tired and so abused that we can barely stand saying them. Uh, but you know, a word like born again, a new beginning, a new identity, or even a new nationality, a new citizenship. All of that kind of language, suddenly you realize, oh yes, this is, this is what, uh, what's so, so deeply needed. A new economy, new, uh, all of this language is there. Uh, all of this meaning is there hidden in some of these old words that we were given such cheap and bastardized versions of. Brian, I'm just so incredibly grateful for your time um, and your input and, and your engaging with us. It's you know, one of the things that I've just reflected on as we've spoken throughout this conversation. It's, it's phenomenal to be in conversation with someone who can in almost every area or topic that we go into is able to reference something from their prolific writing and has already grappled so deeply and thought uh, and so widely and diversely. Um, and, I, and I mean deeply, really, as, a, as not a superficial word, but I can hear the depth of your wrestle uh, within yourself and with others and with the topics. Um, and it's such a great privilege to be in conversation with someone who can, um, you know, who can extract that wealth of wisdom from their life and bring it to the conversation, not just for, obviously, their own benefit. We can see that all through the words and the way you speak. It has nothing to do with just your own benefit, but so much for the, the common good. Well, thanks for having me. We are in this together. Thanks for every listener because the folks who are willing to let their lives be sites of this uh, change, you know, uh, to let their bodies be examples of this change. Uh, it's, it's costly, it's difficult, but uh, uh, we're, we're all in this together. And, uh, People we uh, who's you know who who will be born centuries from now hopefully will be beneficiaries uh, of the uh, of the struggle we're part of. Mm. From my side, Brian, thank you so much for for having the courage to to ask the difficult questions and to allow yourself to be immersed in them, not not with the sense of of coming at them with the easy answers or the or the answers of faith. But but allowing those seeds of doubt to really to to come to fruition within you and and your writing, you know, just just engaging your stuff over the years has been tremendously inspiring to me. Not just because you've got an incredible way with words, but but just because you've you've been able to reframe questions in light of of how they need to be asked, rather than come at them. You know, as though they're 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 contentious and they need to be beaten down. 
and it's just been an incredible example. You know, it's just been, yeah, it's just been really beneficial to me and, and to many, many others, you know, no, no doubt just to engage with your writings. And it's a wonderful privilege to be able to have these kind of conversations with you. I'm, I'm really hoping that you, you like us enough for this to be the first of many. <laughs> that sounds great. That sounds great. Well, I'd like that very much. I'm thrilled to be with you. I love your beautiful country and uh, the beautiful people of your country. And uh, I, I, uh, I thank you for this time. You know, I, I think about a lot of the hours I spend writing, I'm sort of banging my head against a wall in a basement or a hotel room or something. And, and it's just wonderful to know that that's been of help to somebody else. So thank you. If you're ever out in South Africa again, drop me a line and I'll I'll take you to explore some unseen hey, gems I, in the mountains. Know, I would love that. that I would love that. Street. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware that we've taken up nearly two hours of your time. <laughs> uh, is there any parting words that you'd, you'd like to, to, to leave us with? Well, just, uh, no, I, I mean, what a delightful conversation. Thanks for the depth of questions you've asked and what a great team the two of you are. And, uh, and I'm just really grateful to think of folks who uh, this podcast will find and they'll find each other and have some sense of not being alone. And, uh, and I think we realize, yeah, these, these little conversations, an hour here, two hours there, they all play the part in uh, how Kamala Harris set it up, uh, of being unburdened from the world that was so that we can uh, imagine a, 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 a new world. So. Uh, so thank you very much for, for the chance to be with you and keep up the great work.